All right, hello everyone. Welcome to the 200th episode of Alf Hibunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Oakley. This is Philip Cunliffe. And this is George Hoare. So nice to see you. I hope the feeling is mutual because you're... <laughs> Because you're seeing us and we're not used to seeing you. Uh, you're not used to well, seeing us can't either. See we can't see them either. And we're not used to seeing each other in, in, in person. person either. Actually, so. I thought you were talking to us, but just looking at the So this, this is all very novel. Uh, we are recording our 200th episode, which is called The World in One Country. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But I should say we're recording this on the 25th of June, which is the release date of... Um, this book, The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century. So we're celebrating uh, the release of the book just by coincidence. Oh, cheers. <laughs> cheers. Yeah, cheers. cheers. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, these glasses of champagne or maybe something cheaper have uh, disappeared out of nowhere, it's, obviously. It's actually champagne. But it is champagne. champagne. Oh, okay, champagne. no, it's, good. it's great. No, it's great. It's great. It's the criticism of my hospitality. <laughs> Thank you very much. A, a key component, actually, of the Silvio Berlusconi cocktail. Uh, more about that. Not today. Um, so, uh, first of all, I think we're gonna what we're gonna do before introducing the main topic of today's conversation uh, and the contributors that are involved in it. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a second. But we thought we'd take the opportunity to reflect a little bit on four and a bit years of Alpha Bunga Bunga, uh, which have been condensed, distilled uh, into two hundred proof. Uh, substance of bunga in, goodness, of bunga pure goodness, bunga goodness of bunga jus uh, in, in, in here I think it would yeah it would do you as much damage as 200 proof uh, uh, alcohol if you tried to listen to all 200 episodes in, in one go but you know and you probably it, need alcohol to, to do it so I, I thought we'd like what we could do is reflect a little bit on what we've learned over these four years because we started because we started this in in April 2017. Yeah. Yeah. We were sitting in a pub in in Canterbury in Canterbury, right? Uh, and Phil suggested the idea of doing a podcast. I laughed <laughs> and ridiculed the idea, <laughs> and here we are. Up doing it. <laughs> and here we are. It was a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> you were right to laugh. <laughs> My powers of persuasion won through there. There you go. But obviously, this was like. Fairly shortly after Brexit and Trump, I mean, within less than a year after that had happened, and that was obviously kind of dominating our thinking. And I think right from the start, we were like, well, this is obviously about the end of the end of history, or in some way, the return of politics. Maybe we hadn't formalized it exactly yet. But after maybe a couple yeah. of months, we were like, okay, this is this is the well, concept. Our, our instincts grew out of kind of chatting about it through WhatsApp groups. And we felt like the content of the, you know, if it could be conversational, that could be the basis of a podcast. Yeah, no, right just, there, the I'm basis of all podcasts. Of the, you know, some of those incredible messages, WhatsApp <laughs> groups with all the analysis that they would have um, surely contained. But I mean, to, to I guess zoom forward to to the book itself. Um, it's available to buy now from all good retailers. Just to remind you, uh, it it was something notice, that was purple. Notice, notice the purple coordination as well. Uh, also, the yeah, attention to detail is what makes Alex's uh, leadership of the show so. Um, no, it's a bit like the Sopranos, effective. where where somebody thinks they're in charge, but who's really in charge? I've got Junior in charge here, but who's really in charge? So I, I thought we could talk a little bit about some of our favorite episodes or things that brought things to light, some of the themes that kind of started emerging as we went forward, which ended up forming whole chapters in the book. So Phil, what was your favorite episode? I don't know if there's one favorite episode. I mean, tough some question. of the, Yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, some of the standards... They're all favorites. He hasn't listened to any of them, obviously, no, no, but... Of course not. Um, some of the standout episodes, I think we did... Um, I think we did some excellent episodes, like I think the one with Vincent Bevins was really good. 
I think we did next. I think the one that we did with Todd McGowan was good. Um, I think generally, like, it's not just the guest, but I think also that if, you know, if it kind of hits the right moment, it works well. Yeah. I mean, I was. I thought we should do a clip show for this 200th episode, not like a conversation. Then we could have spliced in some of the best, the best bits. And I think generally the ones that you know that I produced were, you know, the most interesting, just the kind of strongest. Um, that that was, you know, something that I guess I've learned in these. <laughs> I like what I do and um, fuck everyone else. No, I think I think there's been a f- yeah quite a few standout ones, and I think. Bill Clinton said, never make a list. People will be yep. upset if they're not on it. Yep. So I just feel realised that now that you guys trapped me into saying that. Yeah. Um, no, but I think in, in general, like learn learn something every every time we record. You know, learn, learn from you guys. Learn from That's the, true. Learn from the guests. You know, it's it's, it's great. It's just an, it's been an honour to, uh, to, to... To work with us. Yeah, You're I was, welcome. I was, You're welcome, <laughs> dude. I could finish that without yeah. having too sarcastic. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah, I, I think particularly some of the episodes that are about countries I didn't know that much about. Yeah. Um, you know, with some very, you know, very good guests. Those often demand a lot of work and they're rarely the most popular episodes we do because I think one, the ones that talk about contemporary controversies around class and culture and things like that the tend PMC, to be... Basically. Yeah, well, that's one, just one example, tend to be more popular. But actually, I think we think it's important to continue talking about countries that aren't necessarily in the news and aren't also the kind of things that a lot of left media does, which is go chasing after some exciting event and then quickly forget about it once the protest or election is over. Um, so that's something we try to do and, and keep trying to do. And they're they're trying the, to, to go into depth as well. They're, they're the vegetables. The listeners have to eat their vegetables. They don't like them at the time, maybe. Yeah, but, but, they, they, but they will live longer. Yeah, like so I think the Singapore yeah. episode is a good one. So that's yeah. done with, um, with one of uh, the friends of the podcast, Lee Jones, and um, he's a specialist in Southeast Asia. And I learned a lot from it. And it was also popular because the way in which kind of Singapore is venerated as a particular kind of model for how society should be. Um, I think people learned a lot from a specialist actually talking about what Singapore is really like yeah. and its history and politics as well. Speaking of Lee Jones, hi Lee. Uh, he was actually the one who initially encouraged us to write a book because he teaches a course uh, at Queen Mary University called The End of the End of History. And uh, and so we, that was where this whole idea started. Like maybe we should kind of try to synthesize everything into a book. And I think some of the themes that we've been talking about over the years had already emerged as quite clear cases of of the politics of the end of the end of history. I think firstly we talked about I think anti-corruption. We noticed that we kept it kept recurring, right? In a lot of the corrupt the discussions we have, denunciations of political elites as corrupt and what the limitations of that sort of our politics are. Our own corruption indeed. Uh the way that our patrons corrupt us. <laughs> it, it, I mean it's a very clientelistic relationship all around. So pure. <laughs> Before we got any Patreon dollar, and now we're so. Look at us drinking champagne. <laughs> so, but don't don't cancel your subscription just yet. We need the we need the money. But of course, another thing that formed a big part of the book, which is I guess one example of anti anti corruption, is anti politics. So there's a big yep. chunk of that in the book. Yeah. And of course, neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, which is something that yeah. at some time around. 2019 was it uh, where we had this idea of bringing together all these different messed up symptoms that we were seeing in society in which especially the liberal establishment was just completely tearing their hair out, not understanding the world and not wanting to understand the world. And it was this. um, And it had the characteristics of a disorder. I mean, there was no it had to be described in a way that was, uh, you know, like kind of mirrored the uh, symptoms of a psychological malady. 
and I mean, there is no way to talk about it without capturing that psychic derangement. So, I, I, breakdown syndrome was appropriate. Yeah, I think in, in the book that that chapter just the the right. I can't remember who who drafted it now, but that the writing really sings, and it just like it just like hits like nail on the head. Boof, 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 boof. I mean, in in my opinion. I would say, and that is that. I, I have to emphasize, of course, this was a collective endeavor for which there is collective responsibility. Absolutely. Collective political <laughs> responsibility. <laughs> that makes it sound like you know, don't just shoot me, shoot these guys as well. And, and of course, actually, one thing we never did as a podcast, and people have brought us up on this, and maybe we should have done, but do something about Berlusconi, because of course he is the emblem. Uh, he's our spiritual guide, and he doesn't have. He hasn't actually featured directly in any of the episodes we've done about two or three episodes about Italy and why Italy is the country of the future. Uh, but we hadn't actually explained what the link is with Berlusconi, and maybe we should just take a quick opportunity right now just no, to... No, we should we should No, it's a spoiler. No, never, no, never, no, okay. never okay. your okay. heroes. Never no, explain your, your heroes. Anyway, so he it's all, it's all in the... Explanation. And we're not going to explain the name either. No, it's all in the book, actually. So <laughs> like the, the, the name is actually quite elementary. On sale if, now. If you know your, if you know your stuff. So uh, enough about us, because this might get a bit masturbatory. And to be honest, we're close enough to make that a reality. So uh, we should firstly say, before anything else, the book is out today, 25th of June. We are going to have a launch event on the 24th of July. We wanted to have it much sooner. We wanted to have it this weekend even. But uh, thanks to the poor... Uh, Berlusconi imitation that is Boris Johnson restrictions have been extended so we're only going to be doing it a month from now but if you're in London please do come join us there is information in the show notes as usual uh, a link to the Facebook event and so on so we'd love to come say hi there'll be copies of the book on sale we can sign books there'll be t-shirts and bullshit like that just buy a book (laughs) (laughs) one other thing before we start talking about the main issue here at stake today which is episode 200 the world in one country. It's just to reflect on episode 100, which we also tried to take an opportunity to do mm. a little bit of a commemorative episode, which was we invited a bunch of uh, some of our favorite people who we've had on the podcast to reflect on what the end of history was in a kind of personal and political sense. Um, and here we're, well, we're doing something different. We're broadening out the historical horizon. So we're not just talking about the period from 1989 to 2019. So it's a neat 30 years. What we're talking about here is effectively the 20th century, a kind of long 20th century. So from 1900 until 2020. And the task is to identify a country that if you were to study only one country's history over that period, you would thereby understand global history, which is quite a challenge. But I think one of the reasons that we wanted to do this and one of the reasons why we conceived of it was because we wrote a chapter in this book called Italy, the Country of the Future where the history of Italy from the end of the Cold War until today is in some way a crystallization of politics at the end of history as a whole. No, the end of history, not necessarily the end of the end of history. Anyway, the point being is that it's, I think, an interesting challenge to try to identify a place which synthesizes all these things, but then to set us maybe a more difficult challenge, or not ourselves, actually, (laughs) the guests that we've asked to do this, the challenge of saying, okay, actually, I think X country is is the place. I think it's quite an interesting device because we're like, okay, if you're going to burn all of the books, all of the like world history books, except for for one country, what's that one country that that will tell you the most about that that period? Um, Yeah, and I mean, I think that, you know, the contributions were brilliant, really enjoyed watching them. They're windows, like I think they're kind of windows that are opened up onto a vista, um, and uh, they work really well. What so what, when you open the window onto the vista, what do you what do you see on the horizon? A landscape of devastation, um, crowds of refugees milling and flocking about everywhere, cool. roving armies, 
the industrialized neoliberal landscape? Well, I mean, there's, there's, of course, these are some of the issues that are dealt with in the videos you're about to see. But it's not just that. I mean, just one thing to kind of trail what you're about to see is that you could, in answering the question, think, okay, you want the political history of the 20th century, and especially, you know, Eric Hobsbawm's short 20th century, the age of extremes. So you're obviously talking about fascism and communism and war. But maybe you want to take a different angle and look at longer term historical developmental trajectories like urbanization or the end of the peasantry, which is a major issue. But sometimes you don't think about that when thinking about uh, the 20th century. Or maybe you want to emphasize more recent aspects of sort of the end of politics or whatever. So, yeah, Hobsbawm, I think, is a good a good kind of starting point. So his idea was a lot of dates here with 19th and I will probably get some of these wrong. 1914 to 1991, the short 20th century. So I guess this period... 1917 to 1991. I think it was 1914. The start, start, start of the First World War. So you have that period of catastrophe, 1914 to 45. The, the Golden Age, which was 45 to 73. Then what he calls a landslide, 73 to 91. Um, and then you, we extended it, right, back to 1900. So you have the end of the, the Age of Empire. So that was the, the, the previous book. So... I guess from Hobsbawm's point of view, you'd need to have something to be the the winning entry, in my opinion, on this of all the videos. Something about empire, something about catastrophe, something about golden years, something about landslide, and then something about the period that comes after that, which we call end of history, and then the end of the end of history. So, sort of ninety one to or eighty nine to twenty sixteen, and then twenty sixteen to twenty to to present. Something we actually address in the book, uh, talking about Hobsbawm's interpretation of the 20th century and him looking forward to a world of effectively confusion and to a certain extent chaos and movements for uh, secure identity, uh, which actually actually in some ways uh, came to be proved uh, correct. Uh, anyway, we're going to be talking about this, or rather our wonderful contributors are going to be talking about this. So let me just introduce them. Who are they? Yes, who are they? So uh, we actually have... Uh, four and a half contributors from uh, Europe, or rather speaking about countries in Europe. I say four and a half because it depends where you put Turkey. Uh, one and a half in the Middle East. Again, that other racist, half. Dude. We don't, you know, there's... Why not, why not say it's both? Then it will sound like there's more contributors. Yeah, like there's Thrace. Thrace is a thing where it's kind of in Europe. Anyway, um, we have three in South or East Asia and then one in... Uh, Latin America. So that's 10 in total. Let me just run through them and they will be presented in alphabetical order uh, so as not to prejudice anyone in, in, in any particular way. We have Germany, which is presented by Dominic Leusner, Greece, presented by Jonas Kiratsis, India, presented by David Adler, Indonesia, presented by Vincent Bevins, Iraq, presented by David Meisner, Italy, by David Broder, Mexico, by Roger Lancaster, Taiwan, by Nick Johnson. Turkey by Arash Azizi, and Yugoslavia by Lily Lynch. And as you'll see, these are a big range of countries, some big, some small, some... Some of them don't even exist. Some don't even exist anymore. Uh, And I think which is on purpose, they're a combination of people who have come forward uh, on Twitter saying, hey, I want to do this. I want to argue the case for such and such. Others that we got in touch with thinking, actually, we need someone to represent this region of the world and so on. All right, so these are the rules of the game. And let me remind you, it is very much a game. There are winners and losers, much like in actual history. There are winners and there are losers. There are losers. So... Uh, oh, did you repeat it? <laughs> I just wanted to emphasize that there are losers of history. Uh, many losers, more losers than winners. So... After you hear it's all a, these... It's and a you competitive he- game. It's a competitive game. After the end of this, you're going to vote on which one is your favorite, and I'll tell you a little bit more about how that works uh, after you've heard them all, and there'll be more information so in the show notes, like of course. like a Banga X Factor? 
Uh, it's a bit like Bunga X Factor. But before you get to listening and watching and voting, I should tell you a little bit about the rules that we established to do this. So one thing that we had stipulated was that we didn't have, want any great powers and certainly not any superpowers. So we didn't want the USA. We didn't want Russia. Didn't want China. Uh, and we excluded also Britain and France. And for many of those cases, actually, we don't think that they're necessarily representative of world history because their own development uh, trajectory was kind of unique. Many of those developed kind of early, before the 20th century, became uh, core capitalist countries and therefore maybe aren't... Uh, I understood the rules slightly differently, but yes, we agreed to exclude those countries. I thought we excluded them because we thought they would just win because, like, it's subjectively... Correct no. that it should be the US. Well, no, because the US that wasn't the point. The US is the, that wasn't the point of the game. No, and Japan as well. We also excluded. So we wanted actually, and the interesting thing in this is to find precisely a country which often maybe is small or not the obvious thing that you think yeah. of as the center of world history, and yet it manages to capture yeah. the whole experience. Not least because sometimes those maybe on the periphery of affairs are the ones who are often the object of a lot of bigger forces, which then maybe is a good place, to, really good place cool. to study. Okay, that's enough from us for now. Just bear in mind when you watch or listen to these, the question, if you were to study one country's history from 1900 to 2020 and thereby understand world history over that period, which one would you pick? So we hope you enjoy watching these. Bear in mind these criteria and vote. Uh, we will be taking the top three from the voting and inviting them onto the podcast. Uh, I don't think we'll probably be able to do it in person in such an intimate surrounding as this, but they'll be on the podcast to discuss through the questions in more depth, discuss what we think are the more important tendencies, trends, forces, factors in global history over the past 120 years. Uh, and then we get to decide the winner because um, that is our prerogative and this is our way of saying that uh, authority matters and specifically our authority <laughs> here is uh, the reel of contributions germany pitched by dominic loisner what was the 20th century really about the 20th century it seems to me was about what angus deaton termed the great escape it was the the, the century of industrial modernization and economic development, the period in which most of humanity began a transition from agriculturalism to industrialism. No country embodies that transition, I think, more dramatically than Germany. And I'd like to make a case as to why that is. The reason why Germany is the country of the 20th century, so to say, is because it's emblematic of both these big material institutional changes and the intellectual revolutions of the 20th century. And those, are, those two are intimately linked, I think. Germany embodies the story of partial modernization in the age of extremes. It unified very late in the 19th century, but it quickly surpassed the, the British Empire um, in industrial terms. It produced the most advanced technologies, the most advanced and dynamic labor movements, some of the most advanced political movements and ideas. But it remained, in some ways, a peasant state. And in fact, its peasant population peaked in the early 1930s. It was riddled, partly as a holdover from the Holy Roman Empire, with small, land-starved agrarian estates and farms that were tremendously unproductive and that kept most of the peasant population in uh, back-breaking toil. And that problem, the problem of resolving this issue 
is famously, infamously, what underwrote the territorial and genocidal ambitions of the Nazi state, which destroyed much of Europe and indeed started many other things. It started the unraveling of the European empires and the beginning of the colonial liberation period and it initiated a whole period of American hegemony that lasts to this day. None of that would have, would have happened without Germany's own very particular, but in some ways very universal, struggles with modernization. It's the crucible of industrial modernity in that sense. In other words, it, it's a dramatic and violent confirmation of the basic model of modernization and also of the, of the self-sustaining dynamic of economic development because the post-war settlement made it possible for Germany's power to be integrated in the coal and steel community and eventually the precursor of a united Europe, which is relatively speaking more peaceful. So in a way, it's at the forefront of this big industrial trend, of this great historical rupture, namely this transition that also led to the, the, the large rupture of our time, the Second World War, that was born out of Germany's disastrously incomplete industrialization. But unsuccessful in war, they did conquer large parts of our modern mind because the story of development is also intimately linked to the story of, of modern intellectual development, in particular the development of the modern research university, which perhaps is the most single important institution in, in modernity. It created all the industrial technologies and implements that underwrote modern economic development and that drove development also from the human capital and educational side. The best way to tell the story is to the story is to go through the country in which these developments took off in the late 18th century and reached its apex in the first half of the 20th century, the country that brought us most of modern physics, chemistry, social science, the Haber-Bosch process, all these things that are totally um, fundamental to our modern life. In its crisis, in German crisis, German destruction and German and intellectual technological achievements, they all have underwritten the, this civilizational step function that humanity has described in the 20th century. And that's why I believe there's no other country through which to better tell the story of the 20th century in economic history terms, but also in intellectual history terms, than Germany. And I'll end with a quote from that totally non-controversial German Otto von Bismarck, who, upon being asked what the most consequential development uh, in recent history was, he said somewhat enigmatically, but I think quite fittingly, North America speaks English. Greece, pitched by Jonas Kiratsas. So I'm not feeling terribly well today, which is probably appropriate given that the history of the unending 20th century in Greece is uh, a history of betrayal, failure and delusion. Um, I think the reason that it's worth studying uh, in Greece in particular is that Greece is uh, kind of a cartoon country politically, I think, because it's um, both in Europe and not, it's important and not, and because its bourgeoisie is really one of the dumbest, most uncultured in definitely in the entirety of Europe, probably on the entire planet. Um, and as a result, things are very crude in Greece. 
Um, things are very obvious. The mechanisms of history are exposed in a way that is not particularly Greek, but, but is actually quite universal because you can kind of see how things work without some of the baggage of history and culture. So this starts with the uh, Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century. Part of Greece is still Ottoman and kind of multicultural, multi-religious. And the left has to ask itself, do we believe in Marxist principles? Do we believe in internationalism? Or uh, do we want, you know, separate ethnic socialisms? And of course, the internationalists uh, fail to, to convince anyone, unfortunately. And it continues into Stalinism, where the big question is, do we believe in, you know, actual Marxist principles or do we believe in socialism in one country? And of course, once again, the classics, I should say, Marxist principles lose out. And there's a huge and heroic struggle in uh, the Greek uh, Civil War and in World War II, which, of course, again, ends with absolute betrayal, first by the Allies, but then also by Stalin, because uh, Stalin did believe in socialism in one country, but that country was not Greece. And then after, you know, decades of quasi-dictatorship and actual dictatorship, and again, resistance to that and heroism and, and all kinds of wonderful things, we launch into the modern social democratic era, which really is kind of an accelerated social democratic decay, where you have two parties, the looters and the bureaucrats, and both are kind of already pretty quickly pushing the country towards uh, towards neoliberalism. Um, and eventually, of course, it is uh, the neoliberal social democrats who really uh, plunge the country into that. And the important thing here to keep in mind is that um, the first person to uh, sign away Greek sovereignty and threaten a referendum is not Tsipras but is in fact Papandreou. And Papandreou, if, you, if that name means something to you, if you've ever read Greek history, you'll notice is, is a familiar name because all the names are familiar because one thing you'll notice when studying this history is that the names in 2020 or 1990 or 1905 are the same names because again, everything is crude and cartoonish and the ruling class is just a bunch of ridiculous families. So eventually we end up with uh, Syriza, yet another social democratic party, really just Basok with a mask. And once again, we ask ourselves, you know, do we believe in our principles? Do we believe in our analysis, our Marxist analysis, that social democrats serve capital? Or do we go, well, you know, maybe we can push them to the left and it'll be fine somehow, just like it was fine all the previous times, except it wasn't. And you go, of course, through this, this tremendous period of incredibly crude, you know, blackmail and destruction by the European Union, where really you can see that all the ideological stuff is it's just nothing. Nothing is real except power and money. And it's incredibly transparent, I think, more than almost anywhere else in the world. Um, but then you see that that also applies to the left when the left sells out Greece uh, and becomes, you know, one of the most right-wing governments in, in, in its history and, and just annihilates the entire country. Um, and the important thing to take away from all of this is, I think, that um, it doesn't matter if you have a strong, beautiful left, because Greece does. It's all the things that everyone always fantasizes that they could have in England or America or, or anywhere. Greece has that. Um, it had all the good people and all the people dedicated to the struggle and all of these things, but when you make the wrong strategic choices, when your uh, actions don't match your analysis, none of it matters. And the fact is that Greek history proves the Marxist view of history right, 
And it also shows that if you can't base yourself on that analysis, then nothing you will do will have any significance or impact. And it'll all be this long, ridiculous tragedy. India, pitched by David Adler. Our story begins in Kutputli Colony, a slum cluster in the Shadipur region of West Delhi. A slum famous for its bright colored bricks, for its artists and artisans, for its puppeteers and performers who arrived to the city in successive waves of urbanization in the 1970s, 1980s and onward. In late 2007, the Delhi Development Authority, or the DDA, the great central planners of the Indian capital, the child of British colonial administration and the pride of Nehru's post-independence capital, announced the flagship project of its Master Plan 2021, designed to transform the crowded megalopolis into what it called a world-class city. In the DDA's first ever public-private partnership, Kutputli Colony would be raised to the ground and replaced by the Raheja Phoenix, Delhi's first true skyscraper, 54 floors of luxury apartments equipped with a helipad on its roof. I'm going to make the case here today the story of Kaputli Colony is not only the story of India in the long 20th century. It is the story of the world, of colonialism and national liberation, of urbanization and proletarianization, of liberalization and privatization, of billionaires and the slum dwellers they displace. To do that, though, we need to rewind all the way back to August 14th, 1947, the eve of India's independence, when the jewel of the world's largest empire would be plucked from its crown. In those late hours, Nehru stood on the podium of the Constituent Assembly and delivered his vision for a new capital city. We have to build a noble mansion of free India, where all her children may dwell, said the country's inaugural prime minister. To build this noble mansion, Nehru would declare that Delhi would be a socialist capital, practically abolishing private ownership of land and consolidating power in the planning authority of the Delhi Development Authority. From its master plan, the DDA would outline a beautiful garden city with a planned mixed economy that defined so much third world development in the era. Six ring towns with employment, population, and manufacturing targets set out for each in the plan. But the high promises of post-colonial socialism could only paper over its ground-level contradictions. Populated by migrants drawn from rural communities to the economic opportunities afforded only in India's cities, slums like Kutputli quickly spread across the city. Pockmarks on the Nehruvian vision of a planned capital, the great shame of India, as the DDA described them. Nehru himself once said, quote, I have a horror of slums. Upon visiting the Turkmen Gate in 1954, Nehru is said to have been so upset at the slum conditions that he simply yelled, burn them. The DDA, for all of its written outrage over the city's disordered development, became a caricature of 20th century developmental bureaucracy, sclerosis treated only by the medicine of cash payments. Documents filed in triplicate stacked to the sky, bureaucrats shuffling in long hallways, money changing hand in public flats reserved only for high paying Delhi families. In other words, the British Raj had been cast off only to become the licensed Raj. Until, of course, a balance of payments crisis in 1991 paved the way for the great return of first world capital. Then, the IMF and the World Bank quickly mobilized a $2.2 billion loan to the Indian government, leveraging the bailout package to deliver one of the most comprehensive structural adjustment programs to the Indian economy, 
the hallmark of that middle period under present investigation. The DDA was a primary target of this liberalization program. Quote, government land holdings are an enormous implicit tax, the World Bank warned. It was time to privatize the capital, and the DDA's elite bureaucrats, Wind and Dine, the McKinsey three-day weekends in neighboring Haryana, were happy handmaidens of this transition. The DDA, like that neoliberalized state in so many parts of the world, would be the facilitator of urban development in Delhi, not its planner. And it is here, with land and liberalization, that the story of rising inequality in our century really begins. It is no coincidence that the first billionaires in India were real estate moguls. The price of land soared as property developers like Raheja seized the opportunity to build their shopping malls and luxury skyscrapers in a new world-class Delhi. Here, we return to Kutputli, that slum in a small pocket of Western Delhi. If Nehru's planned paradise had no place for the eyesore of these informal settlements, the new world-class city simply valued the land on which they sat. The residents of the slum resisted the Raheja project with all those urban weapons of the week at their disposal, getting organized to affirm their rights as citizens and indeed as slum dwellers. But in November 2017, three years before the tail end of the period under our examination, the bulldozers moved in and the colony was raised to pieces. What then is a story that defines the period 1900 to 2020? It is the Indian one, the journey from empire to independence, from extreme poverty to extremely unequal prosperity, from rural to urban, from the planned garden city to privatized world-class city. And yes, the triumph of capital, clearing away the past, melting solid into air, and turning slums into skyscrapers. Indonesia, pitched by Vincent Bevins. If you want to understand history of planet Earth from 1900 to 2020, you should look at Indonesia. And I'm not an expert on the history of Indonesia internally, but I know a little bit of something about the, the role that it played in, in world history. And so I want to claim that the world's largest Muslim-majority country, the, the fourth largest country on Earth by population, the nation-state that covers what used to be the Dutch East Indies, um, is in incredibly important for understanding the last 120 years, not only because it lived through so many of the twists and turns that a lot of countries in the Global South lived through, but because it was right at the center of the ones that I think are most important. So the quick, the main events of eight. One, as the 20th century starts, Indonesia is in the Dutch territory um, covering an archipelago in Southeast Asia that was so important for the rise of capitalism in the first place, so sort of wakes up in this period under Dutch colonialism. Two, Indonesia lives through Japanese occupation. Interestingly, a lot of uh, Indonesians thought this might be a lot better because this was, you know, these three were fe fellow Asians, turned, didn't turn out the way at all, they understood. So they lived through Dutch, then Japanese occupation. Then th uh, three, after World War II ends, Indonesia has a war in which they fight off Dutch attempts at recolonization. And number four, now very importantly, after Indonesia is established as a nation state, um, it becomes a leading light in what soon is known as the Third World Movement. So under President Sukarno, Indonesia pioneers and helps to lead a global effort to rewrite the rules of the global economy and to change relations between rich and poor countries who fight what Sukarno would have called neocolonialism that he believed followed uh, formal colonialism and imperialism. 
Then uh, in 1965, uh, this is point number five, but in 1965, Sukarno was deposed in a U.S.-backed coup that left approximately one million innocent people dead. So a lot of countries in the global south lived through this kind of violent regime change backed by the West in the, in the 20th century. But I think this is one of the most important ones, if not the most important one. And, and I make this claim in my book, The Jakarta Method, at length. But this was not only the most violent time this happened, it also really put one of the biggest nails in the coffin of the Third World Movement as it existed after formal colonialism ended. Uh, number six, so in, in Indonesia flips entirely after 1965 from a left-leaning country trying to reshape the global rules of the global economy to an incredibly compliant partner of the United States and Western powers uh, and a testing ground for modernization theory and development of the type that the uh, United States and North Atlantic really um, believed the global south should, should, be, should be undertaking. After the Cold War ends, you have the experience of financial crisis, like much of the Global South went through. Um, and then the kind of re-democratization, which will be familiar in other countries around the Global South, where you get formal political democracy, a dictatorship ends, the, the rules change, at least at the political level, but property relations do not change. And really the people that are running the country don't really change. I mean, the military really stays uh, in charge in Indonesia. So you have the kind of Global South and neoliberal democracy that is so, so common uh, around the world. And then in 2016, final point, this century, a few years ago, Indonesia uh, has the kind of mass internet organized, spontaneous uprising on the streets of Jakarta that has been so, so important for defining the last 10 years of world history, the kind of thing that exploded what was called the so-called Arab Spring, but then shifted to take on very different political forms, people asking for the wrong things from the perspective of the people that might have celebrated the Arab Spring. Uh, these were Islamists and conservative Muslims asking to depose Governor Ahok for uh, alleged blasphemy. Um, he was not Muslim. But really though, my argument in this video relies on the assertion, the assumption that the real story of the 20th century and the world we live in now is a story of decolonization and then recolonization, or the emergence of what Sukarno would have called neocolonialism as a sort of permanent state of affairs, or a stable set of affairs, instead of the, the full dream of decolonization being realized in the way the Third, third World Movement imagined, the ways in which it didn't, uh, that did not happen, and what it led to instead. I think Indonesia is right at the center of that story. So thank you, and vote for me. Iraq, pitched by Liam Meisner. I'm going to be talking about Iraq, and why it's the country that best exemplifies world history from 1900 to the present. I think what makes Iraq particularly suitable as an answer to this question is, firstly, uh, it's a really illustrative example of the brutality of the West towards the so-called Third World, and secondly, Iraq actually becomes the focal point of the shift from the Cold War into the modern era of geopolitics in the liberal world order. European and American imperialism have impacted the world, the modern world, more than just about anything else, and I think Iraq has felt the effects of that in a particularly severe way. When the Ottoman Empire was carved up after World War I, the British took control of Iraq and imposed a monarchy, allowing them access to Iraq's considerable oil reserves. Now, surprising as it might sound, life under a British-controlled puppet regime with them stealing your uh, resources was not great, and Iraq, like many other countries in the Third World, had a brief period where they, they pushed back against this and attempted to uh, assert control over their own country before that was brutally crushed by the West. So, 
1958, an officer's coup overthrew the monarchy and brought in Abdel Karim Qasim to power. And Qasim's government was not without its issues, but generally charted a more progressive course, allying with the Soviet Union, implementing land reform, and uh, partially nationalizing the Iraq Petroleum Company, which was British-owned. And none of that made the West particularly happy. So the US and UK found a useful partner against Qasim in the Ba'ath Party, which uh, resented Qasim's alliance with the communists. When the Ba'ath launched a coup uh, against him in 1963, the CIA provided the party with uh, kill lists of communists and nationalist sympathizers. Thousands of these people were murdered by Ba'athists in the aftermath of the coup, and if you know anything about the history of Latin America or Southeast Asia or any number of other places, this will sound pretty familiar. Over the next few years, there would be a chain of coups that eventually culminated in Saddam Hussein's accession to power. For the United States, Saddam uh, and the Ba'ath Party were useful allies that served first as a bulwark against communism and uh, later as a counterbalance to Iran. With a newfound ally, the Americans showed their love of human rights and their loyalty to old allies, like the Kurds, by selling Saddam weapons, including eventually chemical weapons, that he used against Kurds, Iraqi Shias, and Iran. When the Cold War was winding down, the priorities shifted. Uh, it was the end of history, communism was no longer a threat, uh, but the US still had bloated defense budgets and no desire to cut down on them. So this is where Iraq becomes ground zero for America's shift from opponent of the Soviet Union to undisputed global hegemon and policemen of the world. We gave Saddam tacit approval to invade Kuwait and immediately turned around and began prepping for war against him. As justification for the war, uh, the American public wasn't propagandized to about the need to you know, stop the spread of socialism or uh, anything like that that was used to justify a lot of these old wars, but instead we were told, you know, we need to stand up for human rights. Uh, this was really the new framework for America's wars to come. We're not fighting for, for capitalism anymore. That's a done deal. There's, there's no alternative. Nothing can challenge that. But uh, sometimes we're still fighting for democracy, now we're also fighting for human rights. Uh, so we see it manifested time and time again in uh, like these humanitarian interventions in a bunch of different places. And none of this is to say that the actors targeted by this line of attack are innocent or anything, uh, but the focus is always applied selectively. And it's exactly what we saw with Saddam over the years. America enabled his worst atrocities when it was useful, and then began denouncing him as, you know, Hitler 2.0 when they needed a new target. When the 2003 invasion of Iraq came around, uh, America ha had found another justification for our forever wars. Human rights probably wasn't enough. Uh, you needed a threat of some kind, so now we're fighting terrorism too. And Iraq once again became one of the main focal points for this new paradigm. And if there wasn't a credible terror threat there to begin with, we certainly made sure there was one after we'd bombed the hell out of the country. So, between two wars and years of sanctions, America killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, set the country's infrastructure back decades, and plunged the country into chaos that it still hasn't escaped from, all to supposedly get rid of this monster that we helped make in the first place. And, you know, as everyone knows, there was plenty of money to be made in war and occupation. So I think there's nothing more exemplary of modern history than the total destruction of a country over all these decades to, to just, you know, secure more resources, more contracts. And Iraq has been 
at the front line of these global wars of the past 100 years, and it's still there now as the new battleground for U.S. for the U.S. and Iran. So it, it looks like the future is going to be a lot more of the same stuff that we've seen already. All right, so you've just seen the first five. Germany by Dominic Glaser, Greece by Jonas Karatsis, India by David Adler, Indonesia by Vincent Bevins, and Iraq by Liam Meisner. You're going to have another five here to listen to. It's Italy, Mexico, Taiwan, Turkey, and Yugoslavia. Italy, pitched by David Broder. If I wanted to study world history since 1900, looking at just one country, uh, the country I'd look at is Italy. This isn't because I think that uh, Italians' experience of the last 100 years uh, is representative of most of humanity. Uh, This is obviously one of the wealthiest countries in the world even now. In the 1980s, it even surpassed Britain for GDP. Italians were much more perpetrators than victims of colonial violence and uh, suffered only a couple of years of foreign occupation. So in that sense, uh, Italians uh, had it better than most. But my case is that Italy's uh, status as a, as a second-rank European power trying to join the ranks of the first and, and copy what its elites see as more advanced countries give its history three particular qualities as a kind of periphery within the centre. Schematically, I'm going to call these its European ambition, its sense of modernity, and its intellectual reflection. So firstly is its Europeanness and the connection of Italian history to Europe's declining place in the world. Uh, Italy emerged from uh, unification in uh, the 1860s, seeking to catch up with the major colonial powers, uh, but instead its history symbolises how backward this vision of global power had become. Its African campaigns in Libya and Ethiopia uh, were savage, even genocidal, in their conduct, but economically costly and failed to make Italy a top European power in any case in what was an era of rising US hegemony. Uh, When it did lose its colonies immediately after 1945, uh, Italy became an example of total European subordination to US uh, hegemony from the 1970s. uh, There was, of course, the attempt to obviate this with Euro-federalism, the idea of a, a European project to defend the, the old powers standing in the world, and Italian elites uh, hitched themselves uh, onto this with a keen Euro-federalism. But of course, what we've instead seen in the last uh, three decades is that Italy has been reduced to a ward of EU institutions, hollowing out its own sovereignty, driving uh, a collapse to flatlining economic growth. Uh, and so we've seen that this project hasn't given a platform for European states to exert their hegemony in the world, uh, but rather managed their crumbling sovereignty. And Italy has been a particular uh, victim and example of this. Second is the way that Italian history has a peculiar combination of the very highest capitalist innovation and technological development and residual backwardness. Up till 1945, Uh, Of course, Italy was still overwhelmingly agricultural. Uh, Its GDP per capita was more like the USSR than countries like Germany or France. Uh, Illiteracy, uh, child farm labour and so on was still rife. Whereas the the economic miracle of the 1950s and 60s, in which basically its growth was only surpassed by countries like West Germany and and Japan, made it a mass consumption economy, uh, which uh, produced cars, electrical appliances, and so on. 
this breakneck industrialization also had massive cultural changes driving uh, you know more than 10 million uh, migrants went from south to north uh, it was a spur to secularization but this experience also illustrates that even intensive development in the advanced capitalist economies was also built on much more primitive forms further down the supply chain uh, the putting out system mafia imposed labor discipline agriculture and so on so Italy shows that 20th century development doesn't proceed in linear stages, even in the richest economies. Third, and here I think I'm on my strongest ground, is that Italian political culture has been innovative in producing the categories with which we think about world history. Uh, again, the reason is that because it's in the second rank of European states, uh, ever since its post-unification bid to imitate British and German examples of state building, his intellectual life has centred on schematising the modernisation paths which ought to be imitated by others. Uh, one variant of this is the cultural influence that it exerts itself. Uh, obviously, the way we can read Brazilian or Turkish realities through Italian experience, thanks to uh, Gramsci's thought uh, combining uh, rural Sardinia and proletarian Turin. But Italy also helps us understand uh, the 20th century through its invention of fascism, the fact that it's had a mass democracy with a direct Cold War divide, actually quite rare among uh, countries that were, were consistently democracies. And of course, in the EU era, it's hollowed out sovereignty and it's a postmodern Trumpian public realm in which the, uh, the connection between capitalist development and democracy is coming unstuck. So uh, this podcast is called Bunga Bunga. And uh, I think understanding how Italy got to Silvio Berlusconi uh, is also about understanding a century of uh, European decline. Mexico, pitched by Roger Lancaster. Mexico inaugurated the century of revolution. And it also, in some ways, inaugurated the end of the century's turn to neoliberalism. So start with the Mexican Revolution. Uh, it's a multi-sided fight among factions that breaks out uh, at the end of the liberal period. Lasts from about 1910 to 1920. By the time it's over, the old regime has been definitively, decisively destroyed. Uh, the Hacienda system has been upended, the power of the old ruling elites has been crushed and vanquished. Uh, this is a successful revolution by almost any uh, measure of the term. By the 1930s, uh, the administration of Cárdenas has begun a process of radically redistributing land. For a time, they take their cues from Soviet experiments and state farms. State farms were uh, widely applied here in Mexico. I'm recording this from Mexico. And the net results of destroying the old regime and redistributing resources, nationalizing uh, the subsoil, including petroleum and gas and so on, was a good 35-year run of continuous economic growth, the Mexican miracle. Of course, the miracle was not without its blemishes, uh, and those blemishes became increasingly obvious and increasingly uh, onerous as time went by. The ruling party was a clique, 
it was a closed and centralist and democratic appearing, but not really democratic party. And it also became increasingly corrupt over time. Um, so you have uh, one of those 20th century key stories about revolutions betrayed, if you want to tell it that way. And it seems a very plausible way of telling the story, after all. By 1968, you have the Tlatelolco massacre in Mexico City. You have a series of brutal, repressive campaigns against the new left. And you have the hardening of a kleptocratic uh, regime who, by the 1980s, began to administer neoliberal reforms, shock therapies, expansive privatization, and so on, in no small part at the, uh, at the prodding of the U.S. and um, the international lending agencies. Um, so this, too, seems to me to be an, impart an important part of the history of what happens in the 20th century, and there's probably no more telling story than the story of Carlos Slim, who acquired Telmex, the Mexican phone company, for a song, uh, literally paid nothing out of pocket, was awarded the contract because he was a political crony, and then proceeded to go on to build the largest fortune at the time, for several years, he was the richest man in the world as a result of digging and gouging and uh, expanding his fortune. So there's my nomination. In Mexico, you have a front row seat to the 20th century. It starts with a revolution. It starts, it continues on with the consolidation of a successful revolution by almost any count. Uh, the story goes on to tell about the revolution ultimately betrayed and perhaps the ultimate betrayal of the betrayal of the revolution comes in the 80s and the 90s with the very thoroughgoing uh, neoliberalization of, of policies here. Taiwan, pitched by Nick Johnson. For the history of the world in one country, I'd pick Taiwan. It was both connected to and emblematic of great power politics and global capitalist development for the past 120 years. Like most of the world, Taiwan entered the 20th century as a colony. It was exceptional only insofar as it was a part of the Japanese Empire, a new Pan-Asian order meant to fend off the West. After the Meiji Revolution, Japan had militarized so fast and effectively that in 1895 it defeated China, absorbing Taiwan in the process, and a decade later it defeated Russia. Japan's failed bid for hegemony defined the early 20th century in the Pacific. Under the policy of industrial Japan, agricultural Taiwan, the empire engineered a shift from subsistence to export agriculture. 16% of Japan's rice and more than 80% of its sugar came from Taiwan, as the percentage of irrigated farmland doubled. Before Japan arrived, Taiwan had almost no roads, railways, or financial institutions, and less than 10% of children were in school. By the 1940s, Japan had connected the northern and southern ports by railway, built over 12,000 kilometers of roads, opened more than 400 banks, and increased primary school enrollment to over 70%. Land surveys, clarified property rights, formalized landlord-tenant relations, and facilitated rural taxation. Thus, colonial modernization gave Taiwan a powerful centralized state that penetrated the countryside and a relatively large endowment of human capital. As the conclusion of World War II brought many nations around the world independence, 
Taiwan underwent a complex political transition from Japanese to Chinese rule, a process of decolonization that felt pretty colonial to most islanders. Even as many cheered the expulsion of the Japanese and welcomed the Kuomintang from the mainland, they soon became disillusioned by corruption, military dictatorship, and economic stagnation. Inflation soared to over 3,000%. In response to widespread protests against police violence, the KMT rounded up and shot nearly 20,000 Taiwanese, effectively liquidating most of the island's intellectual and social elite. When, two years later, the civil war for control of mainland China ended in CCP victory, Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan and initiated a massive population transfer. Between one and two million mainlanders crowded in next to the six million Taiwanese already living on the island. Refugees included Shanghai capitalists, engineers, and managers, who brought with them highly valuable skill sets and organizational practices. In short, new elites subordinate to the KMT. As in many settler colonial states, tensions between these two identity groups were central to Taiwanese politics for the rest of the century. In his book on how the short 20th century is defined by the contest between the U.S. and the USSR, Hobsbawm says parenthetically that, in fact, the standout characteristic of the 20th century was the agrarian transition. Quote, compared to this, the history of the confrontation between capitalism and socialism will probably seem more like 16th and 17th century wars of religion. For Taiwan, the Cold War and the agrarian transition were not separable, however. To even exist in the first place, the KMT state had to rely on American security and finance. Between 1949 and 1968, Taiwan became the biggest per capita recipient of American military aid. The KMT received nearly $4.2 billion, over 80% of which went to the army. This, plus the 7th Fleet patrolling the Taiwan Strait, ensured that Chiang Kai-shek maintained his state. The remaining U.S. aid went to farmers, financing nearly two-thirds of agrarian capital formation. Agricultural exports were the main method for acquiring the foreign currency necessary to finance industrialization. The KMT was well aware that its failed rural policies had cost it the mainland and could possibly cost it Taiwan if communists managed to infiltrate the island. Fortunately, the party's ideology supported equal access to land resources, as detailed by its founder, Suyat Sen, one of the first theorists of development outside Europe. An American encouraged land reform. So in 1953, the majority of Taiwan's farm households became owner cultivators, laying the foundation for a more equitable pattern of development. Indeed, Taiwan's income distribution was among the most equal in the world, a record it still maintains today. In that sense, not only is Taiwan the true China, it's also the true communist China. Taiwan was the first late industrializer. Already by the early 1960s, Taiwan was more successful than South Korea in this regard, and to that extent it became the normative ideal of the East Asian developmental state. In part, this was accomplished by an incredibly high savings rate, over 40% of GDP. Basic education expanded, and literacy rates rose from under 30% to more than 80% by 1970. Further, the military dictatorship was able to repress consumption and wages and coordinate assistance to strategic industries with forwards and backwards linkages, which made the export sector highly competitive. By the 1980s, Taiwan had climbed high enough up the value chain that it was nearly a core country itself. After the Sino-Soviet split, detente, and the aging of the Qing dynasty, wealthy Taiwanese felt confident enough to express dissent that activists formed the Democratic Progressive Party. In the late 1980s, Taiwan democratized. 1986 was the height of Taiwanese industrialization, when manufacturing value-added accounted for 37% of GDP, making it an industrial society par excellence. Deindustrialization in the 1990s hit hard, but with the chaotic rise of the PRC in the last two decades, Taiwan has reindustrialized. On the cutting edge of this was Foxconn, the notorious subcontracting company that had to put nets on its factories in Shenzhen to prevent employee suicide. Another more important formation champion was Taiwan Semi, the pioneer of the so-called foundry model, making microchips that others design. Today, it makes half of all microchips in the world, 
It's a rare digital device that doesn't have Taiwan Semi somewhere inside it. And it's this development that I would argue turns Taiwan from merely representative or emblematic of world history to one of its central determinants. It's once again on the front line of global capitalist development and great power politics, as revanchist mainland nationalism shadow boxes with the American empire over the status of democracy on this little island. Turkey, pitched by Arash Azizi. When it comes to the history of the last 120 years, I believe there's no country like Turkey that if you just study it, you can get a glimpse of what has happened in the world in the last 120 years. So let's have a quick recap in five minutes. Turkey entered the 20th century, of course, as the Ottoman Empire, a multi-ethnic space. In 1908, it saw a liberal revolution that was part of a wave of liberal revolutions um, that happened also in other places like Iran, Russia, China, um, and different developments in Japan that had some similarities. The question of trying to catch up with the West um, that had occupied many of the 19th century will become an important element for Turkey as for much of the world um, in, in different ways. The First World War and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire was part of the collapse of grand empires like Germany, Russia, and Austro-Hungary um, also meant the rise of national polities. Now, Vladimir Putin once said that the greatest uh, catastrophe of the 20th century, geopolitically speaking, was the collapse of the Soviet Union. I'd argue the bigger catastrophe happened earlier in the century and by the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. This is because of the particular way that it collapsed, the, the way that it led to the Arabs coming under European colonial control and the Republic of Turkey itself replacing one of the only countries in the non-European world that had not been colonized with a sort of a radically ethnocentric republic that came with many problems. Of course, the genocide of Armenians and Assyrians had started before the formation of the Republic, but different sort of ethnic cleansing in the Anatolia um, and different sorts of political uh, subjugation of people who were considered to be non-Turks uh, became definitive elements of this Republic of Turkey. Of course, these are negative elements. There were also many positive elements. Foundation of a, a secular Republic, the emphasis on the rights of women, and formation of a sovereign um, Republic that would lead uh, ultimately in 1950 to multi-party elections and a democratic process in Turkey. I cited step over at Second World War, I don't have much time for it, and I'll make an argument that while Second World War was of course like, seminally important, but if you look at countries that were neutral uh, in the war, um, we'll, we'll get something without centering the war uh, so much. After the war, uh, Turkey, in the last days of the war, it had declared a symbolic war on, on, on Germany and Japan, and it joined the United Nations. The heavy-handed approach of the Soviet Union meant that it uh, quickly had to take the side of the West in the Cold War, and, and it played a role uh, in the Korean War. In the post-war period, from 50 to 91 to the end of Habsburg, a short 20th century, and Turkey saw mass communist movement, four coups which had different orientation. The 1960 coup was uh, was more of a left-wing orientation, whereas the one in the 1980 was very much anti-communist and aimed at uh, putting an end to the challenge that the communists had raised in Turkish society. In the 80s and later on in the 90s, uh, like many countries in the world, it saw a rise of neoliberalism. And what it has seen um, in the days since, um, in the last um, 30 or 40 years, if you want to look at broad sweeps, is that, so we have neoliberalism, but we also see 
that things that Ataturk and the founders of the modern Turkish Republic had thought very easily um, they can uh, get rid of, like uh, Islamism uh, or a rise of Islamic-based national identity, make a comeback, of course. And Recep Tayyip Erdogan, a president who is now known as much for his authoritarianism as for his pro-conservative economic uh, views and also Islamism and the way he has uh, sort of valorized a essentialized Islamic identity uh, for Turkey and used it in its the war that he has often waged with the Kurdish minority in the country uh, as much as the fight that he's had with uh, women's rights activists or, or uh, people he considers seculars in his, in his own country. You look at this broad uh, swath of Turkish history uh, in the last 120 years, I think it becomes very clear that it is the ideal country uh, to study to understand what's going on. Tan Pinar, the great novelist of the Turkish 20th century, liked to talk of the horrible thing called belatedness, and that was central to understanding Turkish history. I think it is important in understanding the history of the last 120 years to look at it uh, from the perspective of, um, of countries like Turkey who had to play in a game whose rules were, had been set already uh, by different players, uh, basically, the, the Europeans and the West, and, and how and they went through this and answered this challenge. And they, of course, uh, being different classes in Turkey, different political movements, but also those who got to rule the country at each uh, different point. Yugoslavia, pitched by Lily Lynch. If I could study the history of only one country and understand the world during the period 1900 and 2020, it would be Yugoslavia. I'm taking some liberties here because Yugoslavia existed in several different iterations during the 20th century and of course does not exist today, but rather has become seven successor states uh, that no longer bear that name. The history of the world from 1900 to 2020 is the history of great power rivalry of the way inter-imperial rivalry affects smaller states, such as Yugoslavia. Uh, this was true at the beginning of the 20th century, when territories that would go on to become Yugoslavia comprised part of the Ottoman Empire and Austro-Hungary. And it's true today, as seen in China's competition for influence with the US and EU and the Balkans, for example, through Belt and Road infrastructure projects in countries like Serbia, with whom it shares what it calls an uh, iron friendship. The Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913 are often described as a prelude to World War I because they dramatically reduced and weakened the power of the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The very next year, 19-year-old Bosnian Serb Gavrilo Princip, an anti-imperialist and supporter of South Slavic unity, assassinated the Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo. It is an indisputable error to lay blame for World War I on this Serbian teenager when the fault lies with imperialism. The war finished the Russian, Austrian, Ottoman, and German empires. Russia's empire collapsed, and in its place, the Bolsheviks established the Soviet Union. So the Balkans are where imperialist rivalries become most visible, um, where they really show themselves, and where nationalism has indeed contested imperialism. The history of the world from 1900 to 2020 is also one of the changing nature of war from those fought explicitly for territory, resources, and influence, to humanitarian intervention, to human rights militarism, to, say, imperialism with a human rights mask. The Balkans in the 1990s were this human rightsism as an ideology attempts to assert its legitimacy. This human rightsism is birthed not only as a consequence of the horrors of World War II, but of decolonialization, and the need for the West to find new ways to assert control over newly decolonized countries that is to justify continued meddling. 
One clear manifestation of this evolved ideology is responsibility to protect RTP, a global political commitment that under the banner of never again seeks to ensure the international community never fails to halt crimes such as ethnic cleansing, at least in some places. Responsibility to protect was unanimously adopted in 2005 at the UN World Summit, strangely in the shadow of the US invasion of Iraq, crimes which it did not address. The new global regime of RTP divides the international system into two distinct categories. Sovereign states whose citizens have political rights and de facto protectorates uh, whose populations are seen as powerless wards in need of external safeguarding. This idea is not a Balkan one-off from the 90s at all, but rather a starting point for a new kind of worldwide humanitarianism, a new kind of war, a new white man's burden. In 1999, NATO is given new life and a new reason for its existence right at the end of the Cold War when it was supposed to become obsolete um, in its attack on Yugoslavia, um, supposedly to halt crimes in Kosovo and secure the human rights of Albanians there. C. Douglas Loomis wrote in 1994, we can be confident that only the borders of middling and small countries will show new legal permeability. These are the same countries whose borders were always permeable throughout the age of colonialism and European continental imperialism, the countries of the third world and Eastern Europe. However much good might be achieved by say Norwegian or Nigerian peacekeepers protecting human rights in Los Angeles or Detroit, it's not something we're likely to see. The final way I like to think of ex Yugoslavia helping us understand the past 125 years and some of the evolution during that time is through the conception of identity as defined by collective victimization. Western scholars and commentators have long lamented so-called Serbian victimization rhetoric and mythology, all while ignoring or even deploying the same victimization rhetoric or similar victimization rhetoric of other nations, including those beyond the Balkans and refusing to notice perhaps the ways that claims of shared historic victimization were increasingly coming to shape self-concept and identity in their own societies. A central objective of this kind of victimization, self-victimization in Yugoslavia has always been to gain international support and legitimacy. Um, this is a pattern we've increasingly seen in the West too, where self-victimization of groups, victimization rhetoric is the chosen means to gain the support and sympathy of external third parties making claims to power, platforming, resources, airtime, or authority. Finally, I want to emphasize that I'm not questioning the legitimacy of these claims to victimization. I think they're completely legitimate. The point is that beginning in the 20th century, identity is derived from a shared sense of victimization and oppression rather than victory or glory. All right, and we're back to just close this episode out by reflecting a little bit on what we've learned. We don't want to influence the voting, so we're not going to say that such and such was better than another contribution or that one country would be more important than another. What we do want to do is discuss some of the major social forces that were introduced by our guests. So, like, the obvious thing, I guess, is to focus on the political history of the 20th century, to focus on fascism, right, and war, and maybe communism as well. Um, those, sure. I think, are the big three, right? And then you would think, well, you want to do that by focusing on a European country, a core European country, right? Because that's where the 20th century's history is normally taught, right? In school, you learn about the First and Second World War, the causes and consequences thereof, uh, maybe a bit about the Cold War. And so I think the choices there would be kind of obvious, right? Yeah, just but, but yeah. before we jump into that, just really quickly, I think one thing, just reflecting on them as a, as a 
like it's a group it, it's a good way to think about like what was the 20th century really about like what what was you know you can you can divide it up into periods in various different ways but it is a good process to go through to think okay really what what were the as you said the social forces what were the the key events what are the things that you'd have to have played out in a national context for that national context to be really be you know representative or the most representative of, of that period so yeah i guess i'm just basically patting us on the back for choosing such a uh, such a great format um, but and the, the the quality was extremely high as well i mean i guess some of the cross-cutting themes are fairly obvious i mean one is the kind of the decline of empire um, and the restoration of um, some form of neo-colonial or neo-imperial kind of political authority in different parts of the world um, the other is modernization and it's um, kind of uneven uneven and um, I suppose non-linear character so you mean by that like industrialization urbanization urbanization yeah industrialization and main and also the end of um, agrarian you know effectively the end of agrarian civilization in many parts of the world um, and the introduction of um, industrial or urban forms of modernity um, anti-imperial resistance and obvious another kind of large and um, cross-cutting theme I think that's obvious. And of course, one of the dividing lines, I guess, in your choice is to look at the countries which uh, have done the imperialism or the ones who have suffered it. Uh, yeah. And, and it basically, the basic division of the world between core and periphery is an important thing. So do you want to choose uh, a country at the at the core in, in Europe who were imperialist limited, powers? You've got a limited choice of those. You've got a limited choice because, precisely because um, the core countries... There's were, only two of them. <laughs> yeah, there is only two of them, can, but that, you can you you can still make your choice on that basis. I think those, both of those were very strong contributions. But on the other hand, you might argue that actually you need a third world at the time country who experienced colonialism, neo colonialism, late industrialization, and so on. I mean, yeah, I guess, like I said at the beginning, I think the 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 ideal country would be one that experiences kind of successively, or no, not successively, but. Feet. Uh, experiences all the key kind of mm, trends or, or periods within that long 20th century so it has something to say about empire has something to say about you know the world wars I mean that's basically every country so that's not all that impressive has something to say about that post that period of post-war boom has something to say about the collapse of that and then has something to say about the, those, the end uh, of history and the end of the end those of are time periods though I mean I think it's also kind of themes and one of the themes yeah. I think is control it's the story of um, people's classes, states seeking to shape and mould the course of history in a way that is, uh, you know, conscious to some degree. Whether it's overturning empires, whether it's um, nation building, whether it's an attempt to um, boost the position of the state in question, or socialism, in fact. Yeah, indeed. Or whether it's to deflect, um, you know, the uh, to deflect revolution, um, with obviously revolution being the ultimate um, the ultimate attempt to mould the course of history and it's you know fail failures over the 20th century so i think control control and the failure to establish control in various ways is a theme i think that's very important and it's one of the reasons that for example the united states was excluded um, because it on, on the most obvious level it doesn't ex- suffer the devastation of the second world war it's not colonized uh, and and so on but it also it's it's a country which Effectively, the 20th century is its century, and yeah. so that's not a good example. It's too direct. So we and, were looking for kind of we were looking for ways to slice the material in a different way, 
rather than take the most obvious route. Yeah, I mean, there's there's another way you could you could uh, use your vote. You know, get out the vote. Make sure you do you do do that. Um, vote and this early and often. Early and often. With your kind of your your old accounts as well on Twitter. Um, no, one one thing you could you could say, um, or one kind of route you could take is okay. This country illustrates something which is a bit underlooked otherwise, um, and really is a is a underlooked. Underlooked. You mean overlooked? No, underlooked. <laughs> it illustrates something that's been looked, overlooked. It's overlooked. Looked, it's looked less than it should be. This is the right level, so it's looked less than that. You could say. The political history or, or the political events of the 20th century, this idea of, of betrayal, this is something which, or, or catastrophe, or kind of like there is some kind of aspect of, of a certain country, or bureaucratization was, was something which, which came out in quite, quite a few of the contributions, which I thought, ah, actually, this, like, if you were to look through that lens, um, taking out kind of some of the key concepts which you always talk about world history using, then it would be quite illustrative. Therefore, go for this one. It's a kind of the dark horse bet. It's the perennial Belgium in the Euros kind of option. It doesn't, doesn't get that. It's a, it's a, it was quite... quite no, no, it works, work. it works. And you're like, okay, this, this, this one, it doesn't do everything, but it does some things that, no, that the others don't do. I think, needless to say, there's no perfect answer, right? Because... There are but countries. Someone must win. But someone must win. But there, <laughs> but there's political factors. You could emphasize certain sociological factors, long-term developmental ones, and no country is going to capture them all. Or indeed, even intellectual factors, which is something that we haven't discussed. But a country's intellectual contribution that you might yeah. learn about through studying that country's history. Uh, so the kind of the choice is yours, really, and we, we've. Given as a brief to well, all our wonderful contributors. Not really, because we choose in the end. So, but but the initial <laughs> choice is yours. So it's the a neoliberal. It's a neoliberal choice, essentially. Yeah, you can choose between the options. We participatory. Yeah, we'll it's participatory. It's participatory to. neoliberalism. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's the order of the day more generally, and <laughs> it's the order of the day here. Okay, so we hope you've gained something from these videos. I think they're all fantastic, each one better than the next, different in style, different in emphasis of content and so on. So we want to thank all of them. And some of them have been previous contributors and guests on BungaCast. Other ones are completely new uh, and uh, they've all done a brilliant job. There's the ability to vote on Patreon if you're a subscriber, on Facebook, on Twitter. And we will be looking forward to having the guests on those top three. So that's the end of episode 200. Here's to another 200 episodes. Cheers. Cheers. Here's to another 200 episodes. All right. Catch you later. Bye-bye.